If you have your Bibles, take them and turn to the uh, book of Ephesians. And we are uh, working our way through this book. We have been for some time, and uh, uh, we will take a break in uh, June. And early end of June, we're going to start another series uh, through the summer. And the, the first six weeks, at least, is going to be along the lines of, If I Should Die Before I Wake. Um, and uh, we want to talk about issues around death and dying and uh, heaven. And so uh, we've got a series that we're working on for for that coming up in June and July. Uh, so we'll go to Ephesians uh, till that point and then pick it up again in, in the fall. But this is our last look at the marriage section of the book of Ephesians. It's been a, a mini-series uh, uh, for about, uh, this is the third week. And it's been a, a helpful thing for me just to re-study God's intention for marriage. And I am so thankful for the many strong marriages that I see. I'm so thankful for my marriage and for... Uh, it's, it's health uh, and for the things that God is, is doing there. Um, but as I say that, I also am aware that marriages are under constant attack. We see that in the culture in which we live. We see it in the media. We see it in the TV shows that, that uh, occupy most of the TV stations, it seems. And many of uh, marriages that we witness are shipwrecked. I think probably there's few things more tragic than Christian leaders who, who, who regularly teach and instruct God's people and uh, write about marriage, and then their own marriage is shipwreck. And it is a cause of discouragement and disillusionment for the people of God. I think added to that, you have uh, many marriages that are simply held together by a string and scotch tape, it seems. That, uh, that what you see on the outside is not necessarily what's going on on the inside. And uh, one individual called those um, kind of marriages, it's like a Hollywood stage set. Everything looks great on the front, but around back, there's nothing substantial. And on comment on that, this individual went on to write, held together by custom convention and the fear of what their friends at church would think if they broke up, these couples endure a pale imitation of what marriage is meant to be. They have grown accustomed to planning their own agendas in isolation. Civility and obligation have long since replaced passions and commitment. Like individuals who see physical symptoms but refuse to be checked out by a doctor lest their fears are proved to be justified, they hide until the disease has become so invasive that healing will demand a miracle. And it's just for that reason that I want to talk about marriage and have been because we want to see what marriage is meant to be. We started a couple of weeks ago by talking about uh, the spiritual side of marriage. And it's not something that we hear too often, but uh, one of the most important points that we can remember is that every Christian marriage is a visible expression of an invisible reality. And that invisible reality is the relationship of Christ and, its ch- and his church and the church in Christ. It's a visible expression of how Christ and you and I get along together. And so we need to embed that in our thinking so that as we work out the issues with our spouse, we remember it's a much bigger thing that's at stake than simply a physical relationship. We are a living model for all who will look in on our marriage of the relationship that Christ has with his bride. And what we looked at last week was uh, the physical side of the relationship, and particularly the role of the wife in the marriage relationship. And as I've been saying all along, what the Bible talks about for a marriage is very different from most of the advice that you would get in the secular world. Because the nature of the calling for a wife in a Christian relationship is summed up in this phrase, wives, Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. What a great calling that is. 
what a great example and witness to your family and to the world of how the church ought to submit to Christ. How we all should learn to deal with authority in our lives. Well, as we come to the passage today, it's what every Christian husband needs to understand. It's the instruction to us as men, those of us who are married, and it's simply this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. That's it. That's our responsibility. And we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning so we understand that. And as we do that, I want you to know that the things that I'm going to say are not necessarily things that I've completely worked out in our marriage. I think one of the, the things sometimes is, is you all can have a false impression of me. Uh, some of you who know me better would, would say, well, no, there's no issue there. Um, but, but what I am called to do week after week, which is agonizing for me, is to preach a standard. It doesn't necessarily mean that I have met that standard. But I have to call you and myself up to that standard. And so as I preach this, and as we talk about husbands loving your wives as Christ loved the church this morning, don't leave here thinking somehow that, that I've got it all together. I don't. I am applying this stuff on a daily basis in my own marriage and have a lot to learn. But I just want to say, men, would you join the journey with me? Would you side by side walk with me and commit to loving your wife as Christ loved the church? As I was reflecting on this particular uh, passage of Scripture, uh, just kind of a bird's eye view, and maybe we ought to read it first, and, and then we'll know what we're talking about. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 33. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 to 33, page 978, if you're using a, a Bible under the pews. Uh, and Paul writes to the Ephesian uh, Christians, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot and without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be found spotless and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall hold to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Just a sort of a number of fly-by observations off the start. Uh, you might have noticed that in this uh, instruction to husbands and wives that starts at verse 22, the bulk of the teaching is towards men. The bulk of the teaching is towards the husband and how the husband ought to conduct himself in the marriage relationship. I think the, the second thing that I, uh, that I see as I... Uh, sort of uh, uh, fly by this passage, is that um, there's, there, we have to resist the ten- temptation to point out to one another what their responsibility is. And 
frankly, one of the things that I found that stood out for me this time as I read this passage, because I never had sort of looked at it as closely as I have this last number of weeks, is that there is not one command in this passage to women. There is not one command to wives. But there are two commands to husbands, imperatives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, love your wife as you love yourself. And so if there's any sort of imperative weight from this passage, it seems to fall on husbands in the marriage relationship. Uh, the, the, the third thing that I noticed in this passage is nowhere in this passage, nowhere is there any teaching on how men ought to use their authority or exert their headship in the marriage. The only place that any reference to the authority of the husband is, is made is when he is talking to wives. And I think that's because men do not need any instruction on using their authority or their power. But six times in this passage, the word love is used. And if there's anything that we men need to grasp, it's that how do we love? How do we see how Christ loved the church? How do we engage and embrace love in our marriage relationship? Not how do we use our authority in the, re- in the relationship. I was reading from one counselor who wrote that while the popular media often relaxes against headship because of male dominance, his experience is that wives are frequently distressed by their husband's passivity, by their avoidance of responsibility in a marriage relationship. And then the, the other thing that I notice is, is that the model for husbands is unmistakably clear. The model for husbands is made at least three times in this short passage. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. As Christ gave himself up to purify the wives in the same way husbands love your wives. As Christ cares for his body, the church, husbands love your wives. And so it's absolutely clear who our model is. And man, you may have had a great father. But don't base your relationship with your wife on your father. Learn from it. Base it on Christ. Study Christ. Go and look how Christ gave himself up for the church and model your love for your wife on what Scripture teaches how Christ loved his bride, the church. So then marriage is really quite simple for the man. It's really quite simple. We have a model and a manual which is Christ and the New Testament, and we have clear, understandable guidelines. It's not rocket science, but it's oh so hard to live out in our homes. So the first thing that I want us to just look at, and, and I think in the years that I've been here, I've never done a how-to sermon, but there are some instructions here about how to love your wives about how men ought to love their wives. And the first thing that I see in here is that uh, the love for our wife is a love that demonstrates your selflessness. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The husband's wife love for his wife is to be marked by sacrifice. 
You see, our culture perceives love in terms of a response to something that's regarded as attractive or meaningful. And therefore, love continues so long as those characteristics are in place, but it fades with the loss of physical appeal or the object uh, or the person. In contrast, Christian love is to extend far beyond the boundaries of appearance and personality. Christian love is to be sacrificial love. Men, are you willing to die for your wives? Are you willing to die in order to protect them? Are you willing to give up everything that you long for and you want for yourself in order to see that the needs of your wife are provided for? That is what it means to love your wife selflessly. Is your wife the apple of your eye? Is your wife the focus of your attention? Do you have eyes for anyone else? If you do, you are not loving your wife as Christ loved the church. I was reflecting this morning in my office on Proverbs chapter 5, which uh, is a passage which I have read a number of times in the last year. Uh, But it comes up in this way, and he says, um, Drink water from your own cistern. He's talking to husbands. Flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. As a lovely deer, as a graceful doe, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always with her love. Be intoxicated always with her love. It's a strange kind of word to be using about love for our wife. But do you have eyes only for your wife? Do you put her needs and her wants before your own? I forgot a book. I'm not coming over to kiss my wife. (laughs) Although I'd really like to. (laughs) But uh, sorry about that. Um, but I was, I was thinking about this, um, reading a book by uh, Alistair Beck this past week, and he writes this, he says, There is no more precious gift entrusted to a man than the treasure of his wife. She is to be admired and prized above all others. She is to have first place in his heart, mind, and affections. She is to be given special care and attention that leaves no doubt of her husband's esteem. Husbands should put themselves in the place of the wife who told me of spending an afternoon with a group of neighborhood ladies. She went home recalling discussions about sexual fantasies and materialistic desires. She also was still recoiling from the scornful responses she had received from expressing her opinions about marriage. She had told the group she believed her identity was to be found in communion with her husband and not in competition. They had howled derisively at that one. She had also explained that there was more involved in a woman taking her husband's last name than was often thought. She is now home, battle-scarred and weary, hovering over the stove, trying to yet again time a meal for an unannounced arrival of her husband. She hopes that when he gets home, she will have her emotional batteries recharged. She is looking to her husband to provide affirmation, approval, affection, and maybe even one of those good back rubs. Then he walks in, late, tired, and inconsiderate. Talked out, he simultaneously picks up the mail and reaches for the TV remote. 
She watches him eat and winces inwardly as he announces the racquetball match that awaits him. Two hours later, he reappears. And she knows better than to know, expect anything other than the sound of the shower, the sweaty togs in the laundry room, and maybe in I'm sorry and good night. That night, as she lies staring at the cracks on the ceiling, she must be very careful in case she allows the suggestions of the neighborhood wives earlier that day to find a lodging place in the corner of her mind. There is no excuse for the behavior of the husband in this scenario. His behavior has one word written all over it, selfishness. Husbands, love your wives selflessly. The second thing that I read in this passage is, how do you love your wives? Well, you love your wife by establishing your marriage on the word of God. Do you notice what, uh, what the example that Paul uses? He says that Jesus sanctified her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Is the word of God a present voice in your home? See, Paul's encouragement to husbands is to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And what did Christ do for the church? He gave the word to the church. He gave the word to the church. And so living and, and, and reading scripture in the home, as well as making family altars and family worship around the scripture, a, a time when it is honored, is a way that you express your love for your wife. See, men, the church is not the primary spiritual leader for your home and family. You are. You are the one who is to bring the word of God before your spouse and your children if they come into the picture. And we are to use various means to ensure that our wives and our children have a regular diet in the word of God. Washing through the word. Remember what Jesus prayed in in John 17 for his disciples and for the church? Sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Jesus knew the gift of the word of God to his bride, the church. Husbands, do you know the gift of the word of God to a way of showing your love for your wife? I have chatted with uh, enough women over the years in my office who have talked to me about their, their relationship in the home. And there is a longing in the vast majority of them for their husbands to provide leadership in the home. They want you to be the spiritual leader in the home. I don't understand sometimes why our wives have such intuition in this area. Why they have such an ability in this area. Why they have such a a passion and yet it's the responsibility of men. And I have seen so many wives who want to stand behind their men and encourage them and support them and stand by them. But they are frustrated because their men do not lead spiritually in the home. Men, your wives will help you. They will stand by you. But you express your love for your wife by making the word of God primary in your home. A third way that I see how do you love your wife? With a love that considers how to make your bride glorious. With a love that considers how to make your bride glorious. See, husbands, we are to follow the example of Christ who made his bride radiant to himself. Some of you may be around churches long enough when we used to um, sing that song. It's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. It was an old one. We used to sing Sunday nights and um, 
But it, it has come to light in a new way for me because we ought to sing that in a way to our wives. She's a glorious bride without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. You see, our, our goal, men, as husbands, is to, is to put forward our wives. It's to put forward our wives in all their beauty, both external beauty and internal beauty. We are to work with them to cultivate an internal beauty that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3. It is not our goal to keep our wives dowdy so that we don't express their physical beauty. We are to put our wives forward to make them radiant, to make them glorious, to make them beautiful inwardly and outwardly. Never do we benefit by diminishing our wives, by squashing their gifts, by squashing their abilities, by somehow restricting what they do or how they're involved in things. We ought to be the ones that are pushing them out in the forefront so we can say, Bam! What a wife I have. Look at her talents. Look at her abilities. Look at her gifts. Make her radiant and make her glorious. Do you know what the gifts of your spouse are? Do you know what she excels in? Do you, do you come alongside your wife and say, Honey, I think you, you, you ought to put some more time in this. You're good at this. We ought to push our wives forward. One of the strange things that I've realized over the years is that going into marriage requires a certain amount of naivety. Um, and we often talk about young couples who go into marriage um, sort of with rose-colored glasses on. And we were witnessing, uh, we witnessed a marriage yesterday down on the beach. And uh, as uh, the couple exchanged vows, when they finished exchanging vows that um, uh, for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness or in health, um, till death do us part, I leaned over to the fellow that I was standing beside and I said, I don't think they have a clue what they're saying. <laughs> there is a sense of reality, is there not, behind that phrase, love is blind. If it weren't blind, I think there would be fewer and fewer marriages. But one of the things that I've noticed as I've worked with um, uh, particularly premarital counseling is that I've, uh, you, you see these young men and uh, they often uh, enter into marriage hoping their wife will never change. They found the perfect girl and, and she is giving all of her attention and her devotion to him, and he really likes this, and it makes him feel good. And he's thinking, Wow, this is what I've got for the rest of my life. And often, a woman goes into marriage with a project. <laughs> they, 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 they seem to be able to make concessions because they, they think, You know, um, yeah, I see a few rough edges on, on my man, but he loves me, and I'll change him. And we know what happens, that marriage then becomes this struggle, often between a woman who wants her man so to change, and a man who is threatened by the flowering of his bride. What I would say, men, get on board with that. Don't resist it, don't be intimidated, don't be fearful of it. Make your bride shine. I think that's one of the ways that we demonstrate our love for our wives is by making them glorious.
A fourth way in which we demonstrate our love for our spouses is by taking her purity seriously. By taking her purity seriously. Do do you begin to see, loved ones, how Christian marriage is different from secular marriage? Are you beginning to understand why why the Bible is, is so strong about do not be unequally yoked? Because these things become so much more difficult in those kinds of situations. But one of the goals of your love for your wife is her sanctification. That your wife be holy in character and conduct. And these husbands in Ephesus wouldn't have to have looked far because already Paul had given just enormous amount of instruction of how it is that we become more and more like Christ. I was reflecting on this. um, And while Abraham is an example of so many things, he really fell short of promoting the purity of his wife. Do you remember how when they were coming out of Canaan and they were headed towards Egypt, he talked his wife into lying for him because he was worried for himself. Men, you do not promote the purity of your wife by engaging their services in your plans of deceit or in your plans of sinfulness or bringing them alongside with things that are shady. But on the other hand, I think one of the most beautiful examples of marriage is Zachariah. And Zechariah was married to Elizabeth. And, and uh, things that stand out in my mind to him is that he promoted her godliness. He had such a desire to see Elizabeth as a righteous, blameworthy woman. And he also knew what her needs were. He prayed for her deepest needs. He demonstrated how much he loved her by a concern for her purity in her life. And so I think what Paul is saying here is, husbands, you need to be the priest of your home. As Christ is the priest of the church, husbands, you need to be the priest of your home. You need to cultivate a passion for the spiritual purity of your bride. Spiritual leadership is your responsibility. John 17, again, says, Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And listen carefully to what Christ says here. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they may be holy by your truth. Do you understand what he's saying? Is that part of the way that you promote the purity of your wife is by consecrating yourself to God. By promoting your own godliness and your own righteousness and your own blameworthiness. Christ made himself pure and perfect for the sake of his bride. And so he talks about without spot. Without spot seems to be a reference to external sort of contaminations. And James 1.27 says, This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. It's the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians. Um, And so what I was thinking and what I do think and what is part of my mind is, Husbands, what are you doing to stop the world from invading your home? What are you doing to stop the world from squeezing your wife into its mold? What, what points is your wife struggling 
with the world in her life? Do you know? Do you see them? Do you come alongside of her and try and promote her purity so that she is not squeezed into the mold of the world by her attitudes or her actions or the things that she reads or the places that she goes? And then he says, without wrinkle. And that wrinkles, I understand, are the cause of dying inside. And I think, for me, it's a reference to, are you aware of the inner struggles that your wife is facing with temptation? Do you know the battles that she is wrestling with? Do you understand um, uh, the war of the flesh that is waging inside of her? As the Bible says, abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. This is God's will for your life, your sanctification. And so I simply say, husbands, what are you doing to help your wife combat her battle with the flesh? Do you know where she battles? Do you know what she wrestles with? And then he says, or any such thing. Anything else. If there's anything else that comes in and attacks the purity of your wife, you stand in front of her and you protect her and you promote her purity. Is the church and the people of God a priority in your home? The fellowship of God's people, the preaching of God's word. Men, the purity of your wife is your responsibility. What about your, what's your home life? What, what TV programs do you watch? What books are encouraged to read? What magazines are at the table? What shows do you go and watch? What plays do you watch? What are the types of things that influence your, your thinking and your attitudes? And do you pray for your wife? Do you know, one of the things that, that I love about Christ is Christ right now is interceding for his loved ones. And I read not too long ago, wouldn't you like to be in the room next door to Christ and hear what he's praying for you today? Wouldn't that give you greater confidence as you went out into the day to know that Christ, Christ had prayed to strengthen you? Christ had prayed that you would resist temptation, that Christ was going to protect you, that Christ was going to send resources to help you. Men, are you praying for this for your wife? Do you pray for her sanctification? Do you pray for her protection? Do you pray that God would keep her from the world, that God would keep her from temptation? Do you pray for her? And so, these are how we love our wives, men. To love them selflessly. To love them by building our marriage on the word of God. To love them by making her glorious. To love them by promoting her purity. And then we come to the second thing, which I was thinking is simply letting it sink in. I don't know about you, but as I came to the end of that sort of section about Christ, that he sanctified her and he cleansed her with the washing of the word, that he might present her with splendor and out, without spot and without wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and blameless, I wasn't lost. And I still am. Because doesn't Paul say earlier, you will never be able to comprehend the love of Christ. It's just too big. It's too vast. It's too high. It's too wide. It's too deep. I can't wrap my head around that. But I can wrap my head around this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. That I can wrap my head around. That I can make practical. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. There is a sense, is there not, in which it would be unnatural for a man not to love his wife in this way? For according to Genesis chapter 2, 23, he has become one flesh with his wife. And therefore, if someone hates his own flesh, we would regard him as unbalanced, perhaps even psychotic. A husband not to love his wife? How can that be? We've become one flesh together. And it's not, uh, and, and so it's almost to be dysfunctional if we don't love our wives as we love our own bodies. And you know, I, I see this sometimes. You know, men, when, when we get angry at ourselves and when we beat ourselves up and, and we get all, all down in the dumps and, and, and that affects our wives. The way that we, that we treat ourselves impacts our relationship with our wife because we are one flesh with them. There's this unity that is, this union that has taken place. And men don't normally hate themselves. We nourish and cherish our bodies. And I was looking at those two words and I thought, men, how much, how much of what you do for yourself do you translate into what you do for your relationship with your spouse? We care for our bodies physically. We care for our bodies emotionally. We care for our bodies relationally. Do we apply that same focus to our marriage relationship? Those two words, nourish and cherish. Uh, the word nourish comes up a number of times, and uh, one of the ways in which it's used in, in the sense of providing or taking care of. Um, I've been studying with a group of men the, the story of Joseph, and finally Joseph's brothers come to, to him, and uh, after everything's worked out, he says, go and get my dad and the rest of the families and bring them to me um, because I want to take care of you. I want to nourish you because there's going to be a famine for another five years. It's also a word that's used um, of big cedar trees that are planted behind a, beside a, a, a stream that provides nourishment. And it says that the trees are nourished by the water. So there's the sense at which there's vitamins and there's uh, nutrients and there's, there's, there's life-giving water that, that helps the trees to, to flourish. One of the most, I think, helpful illustrations of this nourishment is some of you may know the Old Testament story of um, David um, when he's been confronted by Nathan, and Nathan is trying to drive home the, just the dark thing that David had done in having a relationship with um, Bathsheba. And he's talking about a poor man, and he says, this poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. Do you get the picture? This, this protection, this care, this tender love, this affection, that that lamb was almost treated as, as, a, as a part of the family. He, he nourished it. And so men, we are to nourish our wives to protect them and to care for them and to provide for them. And then he goes on and he says to cherish them. It's a word that, for me, it seems it's filled with tenderness and, and compassion and not things that, that some of us men are necessarily given to. But it's used as a, as a mother. It says, sitting over, that's the word, cherishing, sitting over fledglings or on the eggs. As a mother sits on the nest and warms the eggs or protects the fledglings. It's used in First Kings about, to talk about the young woman that was um, got for King David as he was dying to come along and take care of him to keep him warm and to nourish him. In 1 Thessalonians, it says, we are gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her children. That's the same word. And so men, that's what we are called to do. And just as we care for our bodies, we're to 
nourish and care for our wives. And I was thinking about this. Sometimes we, we want to try and figure stuff out and do stuff. And, and I'm, I'm still learning about this. And sometimes I still haven't learned it, but my wife will say, all I need is a hug. Just hug me. And I think that's what this passage is kind of getting at. It. It's men, just give your wives a hug. Don't try and fix everything. Don't try and solve everything. Just give them a hug. And so this is how we let it sink in. As we care and nourish our own bodies. Men, you are one with your wife. What you do to yourself, listen carefully. What you do to yourself, you do to your wife. Nothing that you do will not have an impact on your relationship with your wife. And then finally, cutting the apron strings. Some of you chuckle. Cutting the apron strings. Verse 31, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Men, may I say this is the first opportunity that you have to demonstrate leadership in your home. The husband must be willing to take his wife, um, uh, for his wife to take precedence over any other family relationship, even his relationship with his parents. Do you know that still today, one of the most common um, causes of tension in a marriage relationship is the in-laws? And it's this inability to, to cut the strings with mother and father. Husbands, you need to make it very clear that the concerns of your wife are valued over the concerns of your parents. That doesn't mean you don't love them. That doesn't mean you don't honor them. It does mean that your wife comes before your mother and your father. When you become married, there is a restructuring of family dynamics. And part of that is, means leaving. Parents, you need to be part of this process. You need to let your sons go. I've seen enough families where they, it's like they tie an elastic band around their son. And they get so far, they get, they get pulled back. So parents, you need to, once they've got married, you need to say, you need to find your source of comfort and help in your wife, not in us anymore. You need to encourage financial ties to break. You need to encourage um, working relationships to change. You need to do whatever it takes so that you can encourage your son to establish a new unit with his wife and with his wife to find everything he needs emotionally, physically, spiritually, socially. Leave your husband or your father. Leave your father and mother. And then second, lastly, cleave. It just means stick to. It's a word that means to be glued to. It's like putting two, two hunks of plywood together. If you've ever tried to take two laminated pieces of plywood together, you can't do it. They don't come apart without some part of each sticking to the other. And so cleave to your wife. Make her your confidant. Make her the source of everything that you need and that you're looking for. Make her the focus and the center of your world. So man, this stuff really, really matters. And as I was thinking about this, as we bring it to a conclusion, I simply just want to remind us, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And wives, love your husbands as the church, or submit to your husbands as the church submits to Christ. 
And I was thinking about this for those of you who are not yet married, and there are some today, and you may be considering getting married in the future. Two questions that, that you need to ask yourself as a Christian man or woman thinking about marriage. For the woman, am I prepared to have and do I wish this man to be my head? Would it be for my long-term blessing and for the advance of Christ's kingdom to submit to him? For the man, do I love this woman and with, with a desire to see her sanctified and blessed, and would I do anything to care for and protect her? Here is marriage counsel that can be read in minutes, but takes a lifetime to work out. May God give us marriages in this Christian community where the husbands love their wives as Christ loved the church, and where wives bring themselves under the loving leadership of their husbands as the church submits to Christ.